Well, this morning we are wrapping up our series in Malachi by revisiting a topic that we looked at a couple of weeks ago because apparently God wasn't finished addressing a particular topic. Uh, We saw it at the end of chapter 2 and we see it again at the end of chapter 3 and leading a little bit into chapter 4. And that is, if you remember the end of chapter 2, he's he's chastising the people because they accused God of being on the side of evildoers. And uh, just saying, where is the God of justice? And so um, this, this is a difficult question. And it comes back up again uh, in our passage that we're going to be in today. It's, it's a difficult question even for those who do know him. You know, those who are walking with God and, and, and wonder why. And how is it that we are wrestling with so much pain and difficulty and seeking to follow God. You know, it's a little bit easier when we can at least identify a cause. You know, sometimes we can just clearly see that our own personal choices have led to some bad stuff and a lot of pain. That's not fun, but it's easier to understand. But then there are other times where we may look at things and, and there's just no good explanation for it, and it's difficult to understand what's going on there and how could God allow something like that to happen. I actually uh, met a new friend this week and we were talking and just asked him about you know, if he had any particular kind of, of personal faith. And he was very polite and not completely closed off, but just kind of let me know he didn't really want to go there and having that conversation. And, and uh, through just a little bit more, uh, my wife Sean was with me, which was wonderful because she kind of softened that just a little bit more and got him to talk just a, a bit more. But what, I, what we discovered was um, he had... Uh, been divorced previously, his children were living with his wife who'd remarried, and his, their stepfather had abused his three children. And he was just was really wrestling with, you know, if God is real and if God loves us and if God has a plan for our lives, you know, how do you explain that? Why would that happen? And, and, and that's, you know, those types of questions, those are questions that, that a lot of us wrestle with. How do we understand those kinds of things? And so a couple of weeks ago, we made this point that it's okay to ask God questions. It's not okay to accuse him of injustice. That's especially true for those who know him, who have a relationship with him. And it's particularly true in the book of Malachi because he's speaking to his covenant people. And yet these are the people who are questioning him. So let's continue on in Malachi 3. We're going to start in verse 13 and read through... um, through the end of the book here. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left 
But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. And you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So God is coming back and revisiting an issue here, and he says the issue is that the people were speaking arrogantly against him. Now, when you think of someone speaking arrogantly, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I mean, for me, probably a lot of times it's someone who's very boastful, right? It wants to tell you how wonderful they are and how, you know, all that they've accomplished. That's the first thing that comes to mind when I think of speaking arrogantly. But that's not the only way. To speak arrogantly also includes those of us, and I would put, I say us because I'm putting myself in this category, those of us who have a tendency to want to correct things that other people say that we think is not right. You with me, Ellen Allen? To speak arrogantly can also mean I know better than you do. And, you know, there are a couple of problems with that. The first problem is sometimes it really doesn't matter. You see, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a person who... I care about details, I care about accuracy, I care about clear communication, and when those things aren't there, there's a tendency for me to want to step in and say, no, that's not right, this is the actual, you know, this, let, let me just correct you on that real quick. And sometimes maybe that's necessary if done in the right way with the right spirit, but here's the thing, guys, sometimes it's not, right? Sometimes it really doesn't matter. And so there's an arrogance there of thinking that, you know, I know better and I feel the need to correct you. That's one problem. But here's the second problem. I'm not always right. <laughs> I may think that I am. I may think that I know better. But it really is arrogant to assume I know better than someone, so I'm going to set the record straight here. It's especially, I mean, that, that's arrogant. It's just plain old stupid to feel that way toward God, Right? Now, it's beyond, it is arrogant, but it's just crazy to think I am going to correct God in some way for something that God is doing that doesn't seem right to me. And I think that's what he's talking about here when he's speaking of them. He says that they spoke arrogantly against him because here was the, the issue they were saying. Verse 14, you said it's futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements? So they're questioning. It, it, you know, it doesn't really make any sense to follow God. Which, by the way, since I've already confessed that I'm in this boat with you, for those of you that have a tendency to want to correct everybody, just stop it. You're incredibly annoying when you do that. Okay, There's public service announcement there. Just stop it. Uh, and I say that to myself too. But we especially need to stop it when it comes to our thinking that we know better than God. Assuming that, that, that we, you know, uh, see things that God doesn't. And that leads me to the first main idea of, for today. And that is that we aren't God, so we don't see the whole picture. We aren't God. And there are, are parts of what God is doing. There's a bigger picture there that we really can't see. And from their perspective, did you notice this? It says that it's futile to serve God. 
Which, by the way, did you notice here in, in the very next thing? You say, what do we gain by carrying out his requirements? There's a problem with the mindset from the very beginning because their understanding of futility is we're not gaining from this. So that in and of itself is an issue. Approaching this of, well, and what am I going to gain if I do things God's way, if I follow God? But then there's incredible irony in verse 15 because here's their complaint against God. It says that, that now we call the arrogant blessed. So he's saying, God, you are blessing the arrogant. But what did God just say about them in the verse right before that? You're speaking arrogantly against me. They don't even realize that they're talking about themselves. And they're complaining because they think God is blessing the arrogant. From their perspective, evildoers are are, are prospering. This is the whole thing of, you know, how does it make sense that somebody who seeks to be going down the right path, that all these horrible things happen to them, and you've got these people over here that are just totally rebelling against God, and everything in their life seems fine. It makes me think of Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The, the, the people didn't understand all that God was doing because they did not see the big picture. And since you and I don't see the entire plan from start to finish, it's difficult for us to understand what's going on at certain points in the journey. When our kids were little, one of the things that we used to do as a family quite often, we watched an old show called uh, Extreme Home Makeover. Do y'all remember this show? Any, any of you out there watch that? You remember that? Ty Pennington. I don't know what happened to Ty Pennington. But he was the host of uh, Extreme Home Makeover. And that show, as far as I can remember, was the first of what, and there's like you know, 500 of them now, I think these you know, home renovation shows and their entire channels devoted to it. And I mean, it's nuts. But it started, as far as I can remember, it started with this one show. And they would go in and they would do an extreme makeover on the home. And, and one of the things that, that always happens, and this is true of all the shows today as well, when they're doing some major changes, they always have demo day, right? Demo days when you come in with sledgehammers and you just start knocking holes in walls and, you know, busting down columns and ripping cabinets off the walls. And, I mean, they just go crazy. And a lot of them, you know, kind of have a lot of fun with demo day because you get to be very, very destructive. Now, here's something. I want you to consider this. What if you were a homeowner and you did not know that there was a renovation project underway, and you walked into your house on demo day. Just stop thinking about this for a minute. Do you see some big burly dude with a sledgehammer knocking holes in your wall? What are you going to do? Call the police, right? (laughs) What is going on? Why is this guy destroying my house? It would make no sense if you didn't know that there was a bigger picture. But if you know the bigger picture and you understand demo day is to get some stuff out of the way so that they can build something better, so that there can be this beautiful finished product. When you see the big picture, it makes sense. Unfortunately, we don't always see the whole plan, so we don't understand the demo days. 
We don't maybe understand, okay, what is going on here in my life right now when it seems like there's some destruction happening in my life? We may not see the whole big picture. So what do we do? Well, during those times, we have to trust the designer. We have to trust that God is in control here and that he is trustworthy. And the way that we do that is by remembering God's faithfulness in the past. That's why so often, if you notice this so far in our Bible reading so far this year, how many times already God has said to the people, I want you to do this and so that you can remember. I mean, the, the Exodus, when they were getting ready to leave out of Egypt, how many different times did God say, you in future generations, you're going to commemorate this and you're going to eat bread without yeast and you're going to do it. I mean, before they even leave. God is already saying, and then after they leave, he comes back and repeats it again, over and over again. This is what I want you to do so that you can remember what I have done for you. And we see that theme repeatedly throughout Scripture. It's important to remember. That's why they would have a Passover celebration and and all those kinds of things. But we need to frequently go back and remember God's faithfulness. Certainly, the, the best way we do that is through Scripture. That's why it's so important for us to read and, and get to know God's character and, and remind ourselves what God has done in the past. But even individually in your own life, I would encourage you to let that be a regular part of just kind of your spiritual discipline, spiritual growth is um, remembering what God has done in the past. One of the things that, that we talk about frequently as a staff, we, we use this term relational equity. We talk about the importance of, of building relational equity, and you're probably familiar with that idea, but essentially this is it. Um, that if you think about relationships as being kind of like a bank account, you, know, you put deposits into that relational bank account when you care for someone during a difficult season, when you're a good friend, when you lead well, uh, when you, you know, just these variety of, of things that put deposits into that account. And that's important because there are going to be times in every relationship where we have to make withdrawals from that account as well, right? That withdrawal might be, I messed up really bad. And, and I did something wrong, I offended you in some way, but if there's something in that account because I've been making deposits, it's like, okay, that, that, that'll cover it, we're good. Um, it could be maybe not even a mistake in some cases that relational equity is needed at a time to say, I know you don't understand, but I need you to trust me in this. Yeah, I, just, I just need you to trust me because of our, our history and our path. Um, that's what we do with God. Now, please understand this isn't a perfect illustration and God doesn't owe us anything. I want to be really clear about that. But in order for us to understand more clearly what God is doing, it's helpful on our end if we just look back and and remember all the deposits that God has made on our behalf. So that when there is a time where God's just saying, just trust me in this, it's like, okay, there's there's plenty of history there. So uh, I know that, that I can trust him even when it doesn't make sense. He is trustworthy, whether we recognize it or not, by the way. He continues to be trustworthy, but I can walk in greater confidence when I'm remembering God's faithfulness in the past. And you know, that's true, and maybe that's even more important when we go through very painful things in our lives. And sometimes right in the middle of the pain, we don't see what God is doing. My youngest daughter, Autumn, sent me a, a 
some pictures of a devotional. She's going through a devotional by Lisa Turkhurst, and uh, she told a story, and I thought it was worth passing on because it, was, it, it really illustrated kind of what we're talking about here today, this whole thing of, you know, God, why are others being blessed when I'm trying to follow you and it doesn't seem that I am? She said she woke up uh, one summer morning and it was a, uh, thought it would just be a normal Monday morning, but she said it was anything but normal because she was feeling this incredible pain on the inside. felt like knives were stabbing her through her insides, so they rushed her to the emergency room, and this is what she said. I cried out for God to help me. Take the pain away. Please, dear God, take this pain away. But he didn't. Not that moment, not the next, not even the next day. His silence stunned me. My trust in him in those moments started to feel shaky. After five long days in the hospital, there was one new doctor that came in and ran one last test, and he discovered that the right side of her colon had torn away from the abdominal wall and had twisted around the left side of her colon, so it had completely cut off the blood flow. The colon was swollen to the point that it was in serious danger of rupturing, and if the colon had ruptured, she would have felt immediate relief from the pain. But most patients... When they feel that relief, they go to sleep, they turn septic, and they die. Well, in her case, it did not rupture. They were able to rush her into surgery, and she made a full recovery. And the doctors were talking with her afterwards and said, we can't really explain what happened, but they were just saying, this is how close you were to death. And then this is what she said next. She said, I suddenly thought of those days before the surgery when I was begging God to take away the pain. I had questioned God because of the pain. I had wondered how God could let me be in so much pain. And I had cried because I thought God somehow didn't care about my pain. But in the end, God used the pain to save my life. The pain was what kept me in the hospital. The pain was what kept me demanding the doctors run more tests. The pain was what made me allow a surgeon to cut my belly wide open. The pain was what helped to save me. Had God taken away the pain, I would have gone home, my colon would have ruptured, my body would have turned septic, and I would have died. She goes on to talk about this necessary pain, this life-saving pain, and then ends with this. She said, God's silence was part of the rescue. And I pray today that you would find rescue even in excruciating moments when God feels silent. When you want to pull away, I pray today that you have the courage to press in because you have a new perspective of God in the midst of your pain. Guys, if you are going through pain today that doesn't make sense, and perhaps you've been crying out to God, take away my pain, take away my pain, and it feels like it's not happening, I just want you to remember that God is doing something behind the scenes. God often works through that pain, and He does have a plan, even when we don't understand it. It would be arrogant of us to accuse God of wrongdoing because we don't see the whole picture. and We don't know all that God is up to. But at the end of chapter 3, we're reminded, and I'm very encouraged by that reminder that he makes. He says that, that God clearly does make a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve him and those who don't. And so that leads me to the second main idea today, and that is that God covers his children in his grace. 
Even when we don't understand it, maybe even when we're going through painful seasons, God covers his children in his grace. Verse 16 says that there are a group of people. It says that those who fear the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard. The implication here is that they're talking with each other because they're disagreeing with the others. Like they're saying this group over here is kind of accusing God of of being unjust in some way. But these are people who are talking. And it says, interesting by the way, that it says that he listened and heard. Two different words in the Hebrew there. And the idea here is that God isn't just a casual hearing, but God is really paying attention. He's really listening to what the people are saying. And then it talks about this scroll of remembrance that was written to commemorate those who feared the Lord. And, And then it goes on and talks about how, as a result of that, God makes a distinction between those who serve Him and those who don't. Again, that distinction is not always, if you're serving God, everything in your life's going to be good and happy and you're going to be prosperous. And if you don't serve God, the opposite of that is true. That's not the case. That's what they're, they're complaining about, essentially. But what is the case is that, that those who serve God, those who, um, uh, it talks about the righteous, by the way, the righteousness uh, the only way we can become righteous is through faith. Even That's true even in the Old Testament. It wasn't that they uh, were perfect people. It's that they trusted in God. And so that faith is what enabled them to be righteous in God's eyes. Same thing is true for us today. The book of Hebrews talks about how um, that, that Christ entered into the sanctuary on our behalf to become our sacrifice for sins. That's our only hope for righteousness. It's very clear that we're all sinful, that we fall short of the glory of God, that there's nothing that we can do to repair that relationship between ourselves and God. Only He can do that on our behalf, and that's what Jesus did. So when He entered into the sanctuary, He became this once-for-all sacrifice. 2 Corinthians talks about how He took on our sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So we are able then to be called righteous, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And if we put our trust in Him, and we, we say, yes, I'm surrendering my life to you. I'm giving my heart to you. Then we take on his righteousness. Well, when that happens, then we're covered in God's grace. But here's the flip side to that. When we don't trust in Christ because we are not righteous on our own, there are serious consequences for that. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And, that, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. I, I don't know about y'all. I don't enjoy talking about this. I don't enjoy the reality that the wrath of God is a real thing. But it is a real thing. And we need to speak the truth. We need to understand this truth. I, I do think that um, we gloss over way too quickly the... Reality and then the horror of the wrath of God. And passages like this remind us that it's, it's real. Jesus talked about it. Jesus said that, that there are some who will spend an eternity in heaven in God's presence. And he said that there are, are many who will spend an eternity in hell. And he described it in these terms as a place where he said the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. You know, when Jesus was talking about that, he he's, uses a place called Gehenna as an illustration of 
the horrors of hell. It was a city that was located south of Jerusalem. And the location of this particular place was where in the Old Testament, if you remember, where the, the, the pagan people in the Old Testament would sacrifice their children to this god called Molech. And sadly, even some of God's children at times were participating in this. Well, this is where this was happening. Gehenna was the place of these children's sacrifices. And later, because it was such an unclean place, it became a place where uh, it was a, a, a trash dump and, and trash would be burned there. And so there was this constant fire that never went out that consumed household trash or carcasses of animals or in some cases even the bodies of convicted criminals. And Jesus used that as a place when he talked about the place where, where the fire is never quenched. I mean, it's just an awful Awful illustration of the reality of separation from God, the reality of hell. And I know we don't love to talk about that, but it's important that we understand that it's real. It's important um, that, that we understand what Jesus had to say about it. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 is really a bit startling, I think, for the way most of us think in our culture today, maybe even within the church today. Listen to what Jesus said there. He said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus is very clear that this broad gate that leads to destruction is where most people will end up. And that this, this life that is found only in him Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That, that is a very narrow path. And he said, only a few will find it. What that says to me is there are a whole lot more people who will spend an eternity in hell than people that will spend an eternity in heaven. And that should really bother us on a couple of levels. One, it should bother you if you're not sure which of those, you know, what, what eternity holds for you. If you're not absolutely certain that you will spend an eternity in, in the presence of God in heaven, that is not something that you want to leave to chance. That's not something that you want to just kind of mess around with and think, maybe someday I'll deal with that. I just want to say this, man. I, I don't say these things to, you know, I, I'm, I don't believe in trying to you know, scare people. and all. But at the same time, I do believe in speaking the truth. And I believe the most loving thing we can do is to tell people the truth. And the truth is that apart from Christ, we are headed to an eternity where, where we will be in torment. This fire will consume. That's what Scripture teaches, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But the good news is it doesn't have to be that way. Right? That's the good news. That's why I say that it's the grace of God that, that covers us. And so if you haven't yet come to a point of trusting in Christ... That should really bother you to say, i got, I got to settle this. But for those of us that do know Christ, and you're absolutely sure that you know your eternity is heaven, and you're good, and you don't worry about being separated from God for eternity, you should still, and I should still be incredibly disturbed by this. Because it means that there are people that we know and love who are on their way to an eternity separated from God. That's why it's so important for us to have those conversations. That's why it's so important to, to pray for, start by praying for, but also to talk with our family members and our neighbors and our coworkers, people that we know that don't know Christ. 
This is a big deal, guys. And, and we need to, to share the good news. Well, let's end on a little bit more of a, an upbeat note here of just looking at what does come for those of us that know in verse 2. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Isn't that, isn't that a great picture there? You'll just be let, you'll be set free, frolicking around like well-fed calves. Some of you right now may think, that, that doesn't describe me right now. I feel more like a calf that's pinned up. But because of the grace of God, we know what's coming. We know the rest of the story. Verse 3, then you will trample on the wicked. There will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. Guys, the bottom line is this. For those who know Christ, to those who have a relationship with God, it doesn't mean we don't go through pain. But it does mean that there is a bigger picture. That God does have a purpose. God does have a plan through all of these things. And it means that we can look forward to the day when we will be able to experience that reward. Not because we deserve it, but because of what Christ has done for us. And one of the things I would encourage you to do that will help in that process is to write down and remember the goodness of God in your life. Just reflect back on that so that in those seasons when you don't see what's going on and you're going through demo day and you're like, I don't have any idea. I didn't even know this was planned. Didn't know this was coming. But you know that God can be trusted. Even if you don't understand what he's doing in your life right now, he can be trusted because of who he is. You can trust God's character. Let's pray. Lord, help us to trust you. When we don't understand, when we do, uh, well, I don't know that we ever totally understand, but Lord, especially during those seasons where uh, things don't make sense and there's a lot of pain involved, I, I just pray that we're able to trust you fully. Lord, for whatever may be happening in our lives today, those represented in this room, those that are watching online, Lord, I, I just pray that you will step in and meet needs and Lord, that we would just see the grace that comes as we trust you. And Lord, for those that maybe don't know you personally, I pray, Lord, with all that is in me, that today is that day that they would come to know you and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.